risk of a land invasion meant that an occupier or force could destroy your data centers and the data that was held within that. Hi, and welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ren Leffy. In 2007, tiny Estonia, a country with a population of roughly one million citizens and an area about a tenth of the size of California, was one of the most technologically sophisticated countries in the world. Beginning in 1991, right after it gained independence following the breakup of the Soviet Union, Estonia's government made it a priority to utilize the power of the then-new internet and make many of its services available to the citizens in digital form. But then came the now-famous Russian cyber attack, a DDoS attack that for more than two weeks crippled many of the country's most important organizations, the parliament, banks, newspapers, and many more services and websites. In this B-Side episode, we'll explore the results of this cyber assault, and in particular, how it pushed Estonia in the direction of decentralization as a strategy to defend itself against future cyber attacks, and even as a way to make sure the country's true history won't get crushed under the boots of invading Russian soldiers. Our guest today is Joseph Carson, chief security scientist at Delinea, an IT services and consulting firm, an advisor to several governments and cybersecurity conferences, and winner of the Information Security Leadership Award in 2018. Carson spoke with Nate Nielsen, our senior producer, about how Estonia became what he calls a cloud country, going even as far as erecting data embassies and adopting blockchain technology much, much earlier than any other country in the world. Enjoy the interview. Why are we talking about Estonia or why should we be talking about Estonia in a podcast? I think it's really important to understand one is Estonia's kind of journey uh, as a digital society. Um, many people look at Estonia from different perspectives, whether it's in you know, the unicorns and startups in Estonia or the cyber attack in 2007. But I always think it's important to understand the journey about why they went digital. A lot of the lessons in Estonia's history can help us learn about how other countries can become much more, let's say, um, the ability to defend better and the ability to cooperate better. I think some of those lessons are are critical in global stabilization in uh, cyber threats. Could you just tell me a bit about Estonia? Because maybe not all of our listeners are familiar with what's going on there. I think it's really important to understand that, you know, Estonia as a country has been occupied multiple times in its history. And the most recent independence goes back to 1991. And I think that's really where the story should begin. When you think about Estonia as, as a country, it, it's been like many other countries in the world. It's been an you know, independent country for hundreds of years. Um, but of course, over you know those years, there's been lots of occupations. And uh, Estonia became its second independence in 1991, which is part of the kind of singing revolution that occurred. And yes, it was formerly a you know Soviet state, occupied state uh, in the Soviet Union. But in 1991, one of the critical things, it was also the timing. It was also the population, kind of education and background, and also really the patriotism as well, the very patriotic. And also it was the start of the internet. 
And I think all of those combinations together um, really kind of started this kind of snowball rolling, started this kind of foundation. Those are a lot of uh, ingredients, though. What was really at the core of Estonia's transformation? This goes back to even one of the challenges we look at a lot of the conflicts today is that whenever somebody who's occupying a country, when you have an occupying force, they have the ability to change your history, to rewrite history. And they, they you know, determine what's been taught in schools, what maps are available, what history lessons, what's on TV, what's on radio. They control all of that. So when you have an occupying country um, or state, um, they can control the narrative of history. And the challenge when Estonia became independent in 1991 was that history had been written, rewritten many times um, and changed and modified, even though the population knew certain facts in history because, you know, they've been shared within the culture and society, but history had been changed and modified. You know, Estonia had a lot of cryptographers, mathematicians, computer scientists, and programmers, and they wanted to understand how they can make sure that history in, the, in both the physical and the digital could not be erased, could not be modified. So they sent off their scientists into the forests and said, you know, <laughs> the story, as I've been told, um, they, they give them some vodka, sent them off into the forest and said, go and solve this problem. <laughs> go and figure out how we can make sure that in a di- digital sense that our data can never be modified or changed by a future occupying force. And this really kind of set off this kind of, you know, effort into becoming a digital society. And that occupying force that you're referring to is the USSR, right? Um, there are deep Russian roots in Estonia, yes? Yes, Estonia, it's important to understand that Estonia does have you know, quite a large Russian-speaking population. And I always think it's important to understand that Russian-speaking does not necessarily mean that you're a Russian uh, citizen or that your you know, background is Russian. It just means that you're Russian-speaking. Um, just like most Americans speak English, doesn't necessarily mean that you're British. This is an important thing is to understand that just because of the, the, the language that you speak does not determine your mindset and your culture and your kind of what your loyalty or, 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 you know, political association is. So we always misunderstand that. I see so many times in the news and media that they misrepresent Estonia. So then what relationship does Estonia have with Russia. They're pretty close neighbors. We've been talking about independence and and defending themselves. I mean, it, it all sort of seems like it's subtext here. Absolutely. I mean, it, there's no doubt. I mean, Russia has occupied Estonia for many years uh, and changed its history. And Estonia does have a land border with Russia. And a lot of, you know, trade for many years has been with, uh, you know, towards uh, the, the East and uh, the Russian uh, trade. Uh, because of that, you know, know, occupation side of things. But that's probably, you know, and and having, you know, a a language overlap as well. Um, Estonian language is very different. It's no relation to Russian whatsoever. Um, It's more similar to Finnish and and Hungarian. Um, But yeah, trade, uh, land border, and having been previously occupied, that's pretty much, you know, know, the, the basis of its relationship with Russia. Tell me about what happened in 2007. So 2007, so kind of for years afterwards, Estonia became its own, you know, uh, let's say, kind of passionate country by taking digital society um, and taking it on. In, in 2002, actually, Estonia became this very kind of digital society in regards to everything became digital. You know, tax systems were online. In 2005, we started doing internet voting. 
Um, so kind of this was where the journey really started. I think the key dates is that in 2004 is when Estonia became part of EU and also part of NATO. This was really kind of this turning point where Estonia really decided that its future lay more with the West than with the East. And with Russia, um, it decided that its culture and society and mindset is more Western and that they seen themselves as more Nordic country uh, in line with the likes of Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, uh, which, you know, it does have very, very close ties to those countries as well. So Estonia decided that in 2004, it was, you know, its view and future was going more Western and more trade and more uh, kind of that direction. But then in 2007, um, there was a decision. There is a monument and that was right in the city center, right in the intersection of lots of traffic. And that monument um, was typically known as the Fallen Soldier, um, which basically in Russian views, if you're familiar with Victory Day, uh, which is coming up on May 14th, I think it is. I'm not familiar. What is Victory Day? Victory Day you know, is basically the... Uh, as basically seen in Russia as the victory over uh, Germany in World War II. But in Estonia, um, it was seen as oppression. So for Russians, it was seen as victory. <laughs> um, and for Estonians, it's seen as basically um, oppression over another uh, dictatorship and uh, country. So there was a decision in 2007 by the Estonian government and parliament to relocate that statue. At the time, there was a minority of Russian-speaking population in Estonia that was not in agreement with that. Uh, and it did start some you know, unrest, both uh, uh, violence, violence and some violence in streets and protests against the moving of that statue. And ultimately, the statue was moved. And there was a decision in April, uh, early April uh, in 2007. And that resulted in some violence in streets and Russia had then seen this as oppression or uh, against its Russian-speaking pop. It always refers to Russian-speaking population um, as oppression and, and aggression. And then on April 27th, uh, the start of a cyber war um, or a DDoS attacks and uh, defacing of uh, websites, government websites, uh, DNS uh, attacks to basically you know disrupt the digital society that Estonia had built up until that time. And that meant that, uh, yes, you know, for a period of about 20 plus days, internet traffic was slow. Websites were loading very slowly. Um, there was some unavailability in services such as telcos, financial systems, access of government websites and news sites. So the DDoS attacks at the time were a direct result of the statue controversy. So in 2007, yes, as a result of moving that statue uh, to a remote you know, military graveyard, there was a basically conflict um, of a cyber conflict between Estonia and Russia. And it was really highlighted. But at the time, of course, Estonia was part of NATO and in Article 5, because Article 5 at that time didn't include cyber. So that meant that the cyber attacks were ongoing. And it's always, you know, I think it's always important to kind of understand that you know, cyber is a way of being able to become anonymous or deniability is always kind of cyber has been used because it has a good ability to deny accountability, deny involvement. Um, so that's one thing, you know, a lot of countries hide behind it uh, because it has that good capability. But the big concern in Estonia in 2007 was not so much the cyber attack. Yes, the cyber attack was, was important. It was causing disruption in services. However, the big concern was that there was a uh, buildup of military exercises 
on the border of Estonia. And if you think about, you know, what happened in Georgia and what happened in Ukraine several times now, uh, there was the fear of a land invasion. But of course, one thing, you know, kept Estonia a bit more, let's say, less uh, of concern was, of course, it being part of NATO. And that's also, you know, fortunate today. That also means that we're just a bit more relaxed in regards to having a, a land invasion as that uh, kind of, if that would happen. But in 2007, it realized an important point that the risk of a land invasion meant that an occupier or a force could destroy your data centers and the data that was held within that. So yes, there was major DDoS attacks, major cyber attacks. And I do call myself, you know, I'm a survivor of a cyber war. What's it like to live through a cyber war? I remember and recall that it was only the first probably two to three days was disruption. But until then, the uh, mitigation uh, effect of the cybersecurity defenses was put in place. Um, then uh, everything within Estonia went back to normal. It was just another day. Systems were back up and running very quickly. And uh, I always remember talking to some of the, the cyber defenders at the time was that uh, they would go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, find out what techniques had been changed and what systems were down. They'd bring them back up in the morning. You think about even this past week, this Thursday, Friday, last week, we were actually hit again by a cyber attack. Uh, by DDoS attacks in the past couple of days. But actually, to be honest, most citizens didn't even know. The attack surface has never been larger or more diverse, yet defenders are still forced to piece together intelligence from numerous siloed solutions that produce a flood of alerts in order to detect and end complex malicious operations. No more. Defenders can now leverage AI-driven Cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle to predict, understand, and end sophisticated attacks with the only solution on the market that delivers planetary-scale protection that allows them to predict attacker behavior through a revolutionary operation-centric detection and response approach. Cyberism and Google Cloud are dedicated to teaming with defenders to end cyber attacks from endpoints to the enterprise to everywhere. Learn more about Cyberism XDR, powered by Google Chronicle, at cyberism.com slash platform slash XDR. The thing I keep thinking about with this story is that I don't really know any kind of organization, corporations, governments, what what have you, that thinks about cybersecurity proactively before it becomes a problem for them, right? It takes solar winds for us to start thinking about supply chain. It takes, you know, critical infrastructure threats to so why is it that Estonia was thinking so far ahead? Was it the threat of Russia? Was it something about its historical past? Or was it just, I don't know, good leadership? It's a combination of all of those. It was one as, you know, it goes back to that 1991 of occupation and changing of history. And when they looked at that from a basically a, a data protection perspective, they really, you know, looked at that as the foundation of society. And it meant that, yes, that they had to become, you know, vigorous. It's not a time to become complacent. There's always that sense of caution. So, so yes, and and also, you know, Estonia is very much a you know a very tech savvy country as well. So the society itself, you know, a lot of people are very technical savvy, very technical uh, knowledgeable, 
and therefore you know do contribute. Estonia also has what's called is the Cyber Defense League, which is also a call to the public uh, citizens to come to the country's defense in the regard you know if, if a cyber attack ever does occur again. So yes, we have basically you know almost like you would have as military reserves. We've got the cyber reserves, and it's coordination and cooperation between both private and the the public entity, and and working together uh, to make sure to defend the country. So it's that very kind of sense of you know never become complacent, um, always be vigorous, always question things, uh, and always look kind of to improve continuously forward. So Estonia has always been like this. I always think the important time is that in two thousand seven, the worry about you know a land invasion. Uh, made Estonia think about, well, how can we actually mitigate that? And my input at the time was the best way to defend against, you know, uh, a, a DDoS attack is to be decentralized. And also in 2008, then NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence opened up in Estonia, which was where um, they looked at, you know, being able to establish a NATO cooperative uh, alliance in cyber realm. And also when cyber became also part of Article 5, so it became a, you know area that uh, a cyber attack in one is a cyber attack in all NATO. So there were certain things that started going around that, you know, post-2007 attack. But still that worry about a land invasion and about the making sure history can never be erased was an important topic. The CIO at the government at the time took a lot of that, you know, how do you, how do you protect against DDoS, decentralized? How does Estonia become decentralized? The problem was that if Estonia wanted to move its data beyond its borders, there was legal uh, issues with that. The citizens' data could not go outside of the Estonian land, Estonian borders. So that prevented it you know, from being able to truly you know, decentralize it in other data centers and locations. So the idea came up around data embassies. And I think still this is one of the greatest things that, you know, uh, outcomes or results of, of the conflict in 2007 was the idea of a data embassy. What is a data embassy? This was being able to take the data in Estonia's uh, borders and actually make many data centers within their embassies and other locations. So that actually in their actually embassy locations in other countries, which is still considered the sovereign land of Estonia under the law of Estonia, that making those data embassies was a way to decentralize the country. And then I think it was around 2015, 2016, was basically the induction uh, of the idea of actually putting it in real embassy, uh, real data centers. So classifying an, a location within a data center as an embassy. So this idea of virtual embassies. The original plan was to have it in the UK, but a thing called Brexit came along and disrupted that plan and resulted in the decision to have it located in Luxembourg. Um, so then making, because one of the things is, you know, in embassy locations, they don't have a lot of the fault tolerance that you would get in data centers and high availability, uh, internet bandwidth connectivity, um, was it airflow, cooling, you know, power, energy? So all of those are not is really kind of efficient in the real embassy locations. And that's why it was important to move it to a true data center and have a location that in that data center as sovereign land of Estonia. So that actually data embassy concept truly made Estonia a, you know, a cloud government. You know, it really meant that they decentralized the government. Could you clarify this point? Because it's not so intuitive to me to think of a government as decentralized. Just like the importance that you see in, you know, with cryptocurrency today, having decentralized of financial institutions. And you also look at, you know, uh, things like identity being decentralized and identity. Estonia was able to truly decentralize 
the actually dependence on the physical land, meaning if there ever was a land invasion in Estonia, Estonia citizens and Estonian government can still continue as a cloud country, still continue to look at you know their financial information, still have that data available, still pay taxes, and still access the services no matter where they are in the world, um, even without a physical country. And remind me how long Estonia has had these systems in place. So the data embassy concept, uh, it's been around, well, actually the actual use of the real data embassy locations um, and actually you know, putting it in their embassy has been around uh, for a good 10, 10 years or so. But putting it into an actual data center um, has been around since I think it was around 20, 2017, 2018, um, where it was actually placed in Luxembourg, I believe, uh, was the first one. And of course, they, they looked at continuing that further into proper data centers from other locations and even considering uh, to place one outside of EU. Most of those have been in within the EU because of the legal frameworks that EU is providing. Uh, but there has been considerations to place them outside. And you would say, generally speaking, that it's working out because most of the time when I hear about blockchain, it has to do with, you know, like cryptocurrencies, but here's like a real life use case. And according to what you're saying, it, it, it's working for them. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, we, we go back, I mean, we have to understand people misunderstand blockchain and cryptocurrency. There's a misunderstanding about this. There's this assumption that, you know, cryptocurrency is the, the prime use case for, for blockchain. Well, Estonia started doing blockchain in about 1998 <laughs> based on a paper. And it, before it was called blockchain, it was actually typically known as timestamping. And would you just briefly explain to us what timestamping is? Timestamping was the element of, you know, you take a piece of data, you basically do a timestamp on it, you create a hash, and therefore you can know that this hash basically and this time goes back to this data at that point in time. So it was basically, you know, available on a lot of things like uh, PDF documents. So PDFs were timestamped. Um, browsers had implementations of timestamping as well. But of course, kind of um, as it evolved further, it became known as blockchain. But where does it? Where does the history goes back to? It really goes back to actually 1979. So 1979 was basically where the real start of a digital sense of blockchain, and that's known as the Merkle tree with Roth Merkle. So what happened was in 1970s, you had a big problem if you want to move data from one location, from one computer to another computer. And at the time, networks were not really that reliable. So I take this piece of data, you know, files and folders from one location, transfer it through the network to another system, and you'd end up having a lot of corruption. So what basically the Merkle tree was uh, as a mechanism of doing hashing and concatenation of hashes in order to make sure that as the data was moved from one computer, you can actually uh, compare the hash to the other computer. And if it was the same, you knew that you didn't have that corruption during the transfer. So that was basically that foundation of uh, using concatenation of hashes. And then later, it was then combined with time that created that timestamping ability. So using time and hashing together was timestamping. It's really about non-repudiation. It's about making sure that one is that it's it's accurate uh, the, at the time I look at the Bible as actually being one of the first real true global implementations of a blockchain in the world. What do you mean by that? When you think about it is it's a collection of data that's basically agreed upon by a number of people. It's not to say that the data within it's correct or accurate. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. Um, that's up for whoever decides, you know, <laughs> in beliefs, but the idea is you've got a series of events that's put into a book that's agreed upon by a certain amount of people. And then that book is widely distributed and copied. 
And when you try to, if you modify one version of that and you then compare it to the other copies, that's where we get basically is non-repudiation. And that's why you get this widely, you know, decentralized database or the hash database. And therefore it allows you to do basically uh, validation and verification on the other copies. Um, and Estonia has really implemented that type of scenario is if, for example, um, an event happens in Estonia, and then basically it actually goes into a security log, and that security log gets basically blockchained, and the root hash then gets basically signed. And every month, that root hash then gets printed in the Financial Times newspaper. And then the Financial Times newspaper then gets printed hundreds of thousands and millions of copies and globally distributed. So that if you ever wanted to change that event, you would actually have to be look for it to try and get all the copies of the Financial Times paper on that day and destroy all of them. And the mathematical you know, computation of that is you know, quite difficult. Not impossible, but quite difficult to achieve. So when you think about it, you know, it's, that's kind of what blockchain is. It's about decentralized, widely distributed ledger. That means that it's hard for one person to change that ledger and change history. The last thing I want to ask is, you know, I know I'm falling into a sort of media trap by mentioning Russia three words after Estonia. Estonia is worthy of talking about on its own, but we're talking at a very particular time in history, you and I. Um, hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, there isn't a war in Ukraine, but I'm going to assume that there is. Um, and frankly, even outside of Ukraine, in Europe, in America, we face these kinds of threats to elections, to our critical infrastructure, to everything. So what can the rest of us learn from Estonia's example? What should we learn? What we should learn is it's basically all about making sure that as much information knowledge to the citizens as possible is about how do they protect themselves? Where's information and resources available for them to become more knowledgeable? The one thing I've learned in my you know, many years in the industry is that my I do as much as I can to secure myself. That, I mean, I put as much protection in place, but I'm only as secure as the society around me. And I realized that in order for me to better protect me, I have to protect the society around me. And this really means that society must be involved. It must be making sure that people have best practices, they understand what the risks are, and that we basically embed the foundation of security, best practices, and hygiene into education, into society. You know, we must all work together. Uh, we must basically hold countries who provide safe havens for cyber criminals, because a lot of the attackers out there are cyber mercenaries. They're basically, you know, they're, they're doing it for criminal intentions. And we have to hold those countries responsible and accountable and provide, you know, less places where cyber criminals have a place to operate from. Um, and the only way we can do that is by working together. Oh my God. Oh my God. CK Music.